This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Our guys today got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Carl Truman. So he is an ecclesiastical historian and author, but he's not a theologian. So I called him a theologian in the interview and he politely corrected me because he's English and he was very, very polite about it. But this guy is a big time brain and a big time historian and goes through a lot of great stuff. I really enjoyed my time with him. So he actually was the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary, where he held the Paul Woolley chair of church history. And in 2018, he resigned his position at Westminster to become a full-time undergraduate professor at Grove City College, where he's serving as a full professor in their Department of Biblical and Religious Studies as of the fall semester of that same year. But he's also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a contributing editor at First Things. And he is the best-selling author of a tremendous book, one of the best books I've read this year, and it's this, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and also a, a more accessible and smaller version of some of the same content. It's this one, I believe it was released this year, and it's called Strange New World. So there's a lot of density in this conversation from today. And if you read his books, which I highly suggest you do, it will be in the show notes so you can pick up copies yourself. There's a lot to talk about on the subject matter of transgenderism, on uh, the cultural sexual revolution, on the the dissolution of the family, and how we as Christians are to push back when our standing in culture has degraded over time. And so we get into a lot of that. We talk about this overall idea of ourself and our perceived identity and how in years past and our forefathers would have never answered questions the way that we answered questions today about ourselves and our own personal autonomy and all these other different things, but about how all of these ideologies are coalescing really on the trans gender revolution. And guys, I know that can be confusing for a lot of people, but this is hitting all of you, right? It's hitting you at your kid's school. It may be hitting you in your own household. And this comes from somewhere. We think everything bad came from the 1960s, but a lot of the foundations for some of the stupid things that we saw and the degradation of culture that we saw in the 1960s started hundreds and hundreds of years before that. So we get into a lot of that here in this episode. I really, really appreciate the time with him, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, Let's get into it. Carl Truman, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know you got to catch a plane across the pond here at some point, so we don't have a whole lot of time to dig in. So let's just go ahead and get started. But as a way of basic introductions, you're a theologian. And so most people don't run into theologians in their everyday life. And most little kids don't grow up wanting to be a theologian someday. And so I'm assuming you had some other plans for your life. But just briefly as a way of introduction, why did you end up becoming a Christian theologian? Well, actually, I'm not a theologian. I'm a historian. So, uh, well, sorry, uh, I, I had that in your bio as theologian yes. and historian. People, so I've already messed it up from the beginning. People, so I was asked recently, what's the thing that people most say about you that isn't true on the internet? And I said, well, the, the polite thing that most people say about me that isn't true is that I'm a theologian. Dang. I'm a historian, right. intellectual historian, interested in why people think the way they do. Uh, the background to that. So Okay, well, uh, you know what? I'm just going to keep th- calling you a theologian from now on. So actually, I'm not even going to call you Carl. I'm going to call you Mr. Theologian or something like very, yeah, very work, appropriate. Works for me. Works okay. For me. Now, <laughs> now, the main reason why I wanted to have you on Theologian Truman is because of a book that you wrote that has really taken a lot of people in my space by storm, uh, if they can get through it. And it's this one. It's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, 
cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. And then actually just uh, this year or last year, you released this one. It's kind of a a, a smaller, more condensed version called Strange yeah. New World. So <laughs> this one might be a little bit more accessible uh, to some people. Um, but I do want to talk a lot about the rise and triumph of the modern self. But let's start with the very first sentence of the book. It's the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. So that, that's how this starts. And that is really a through point for the entire work. So I guess give us an idea of what this book is like in your own words. Yeah. I guess what you're trying to get across to the reader. Well, the the opening sentence is a clue to the whole, in, in that that is what I'm trying to do in the book, is try to explain really why transgenderism has become so plausible uh, in modern society, so compelling politically uh, in modern society. But what I do is, is say, you know, a sentence like that that is so radical, that represents such a break with the past, that is so counterintuitive, that sort of sentence doesn't become plausible all by itself. Mm. There's a huge back history to this. There's a long history leading up to this point. And it impacts, that, that history has an impact on more than just gender. What really lies behind that sentence becoming plausible is a fundamental transformation in what we as a society think it means to be human. A fundamental transformation in, in the authority we grant to our inner feelings. A fundamental transformation in authority, uh, in authority to, of the authority which we grant to our bodies. So, although there's a very specific question the book starts with, it's really a general history of why do we think the way we do about what it means to be a human at this point in time, and what has led to these dramatic changes. I'm glad uh, you kind of, you know, set me straight. Like, I'm not a theologian, Kyle, you idiot. I'm a historian because that's helpful <laughs> when you're reading through this book because there's another quote earlier in the book, and it's this. The sexual revolution did not cause the sexual revolution, nor did technology such as the pill or the internet. Those things may have been may have facilitated it, but its causes lie much deeper in the changes yeah. in what it means to be authentic, fulfilled human Self again. That's in the yeah. title of the book, but self and those changes stretch back well before the swinging sixties. Now I'm like most people my age. I'm in my mid thirties. We kind of think that history started when we were born, roughly, right? Or we look back maybe 10, 20 years uh, before then, maybe when our parents were growing up. And so we look at the sixties, and we all like to lament the sixties as the time you know the cheese fell off the cracker, as it yeah. were, and that's when things really went crazy. But this book is a deep dive into all the stuff that happened beforehand, but also this whole concept of the self wouldn't have made sense to uh, someone you would have had a conversation with hundreds of years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think, let's say if, if, if you were growing up in the middle ages and I was say, let's say you're a medieval uh, peasant in, in Europe, as my ancestors would have been, probably your ancestors would have been as well. And you were to ask somebody, you would just wander up to a medieval peasant and say, who are you? They'll, the answer they're going to give you will be very much located in terms of the village, that they've lived in all of their life, the people they've known all their lives, the work that they knew they were going to do from the moment they were remotely self-conscious, i.e. if your dad's a peasant farmer, guess what? You're going to be a peasant farmer too. Think about that and then think about how we think about identity today. Uh, if you know, we might still give an answer in terms of well, I'm an American or I'm British. We might we might give some yeah. answers that that touch on externalities, but then 
quite often we will pivot to things that really depend upon our choice. You might say, well, I'm a graduate of such and such a college, or I chose to be a CPA. Uh, uh, this is the work that I do. The, these are the hobbies I have. We might even get on to, to, instead of talking about religion, say, well, I'm a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. These are the feelings I have. When you think about the, the contrast between how the medieval person thought about their identity, which was, I would say, fixed and given to them, our identity today is is far less fixed and far less given. And this is where sort of transgenderism is fascinating because one might have said 20 years ago, well, everything else in my life is a matter of choice and flux and change, but my sex is given to me, my, my body. Mm. It's give, I, I have no power over what body I'm born with. I'm born a boy or I'm born a girl. Not anymore. Now you're able to choose your gender. So we can see that the rise of the modern self is intimately connected to the fluidity of the world in which we live and therefore the fluidity of the people that we think we are. And facts can become fluid as well. Here just recently, like the, this will you know come out a couple of weeks afterwards, but the big breaking news a couple of days ago was pop star Demi Lovato is now going back to she, her pronouns after last year declaring her truth, which is that she was non-binary and she was going to use they, them pronouns. And so it's like, it's a very, very postmodern view of truth in that there is not truth or there's your truth and my truth, no absolute truth. But a lot of the things that you're talking about there, Carl, kind of dovetail with this concept that is really a through point of the entire book, which is the social imagination imaginary, which is a concept that I'd, I'd never really heard of before I read your book. So I guess tell us, give us kind of the SparkNotes version of what that yeah. is and kind of why it's important to this discussion. Yeah. Social imaginary, it's a term used by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor when uh, he's thinking about what it means to be a modern person. It's a slightly awkward term because he's using imaginary as a noun. and We tend to think of it as an adjective, you know, imaginary creatures, etc., etc. We tend to think imagination's the noun, imaginary is the adjective. Well, he's using the adjective as a noun, which, which gives it an awkward feel. But really, the idea is, is relatively straightforward. And, and the idea is, is essentially this, that the way we actually operate in the world the way we, we, we live and move and have our being in the world is, is not generally grounded in first principles. Mm. Uh, in other words, you know, take a very simple example. After we finish this podcast, I'm going to leave this room through the door uh, to my left. Well, I really have no idea how atoms and molecules and solids and liquids and, uh, you know, or, or architectural principles. I just know that doors work. It's an intuition that, hey, that's the hole in the wall that I want to leave through rather than smashing myself up against the solid in the hope that, hey, the solid will let me through. Well, that kind of intuitive way we relate to the world, that way we imagine the world to be, doesn't just connect to, to things like doors. It also connects to often to, say, moral principles. Uh, most of us, most human beings have some moral vision of the world. We have some sense of right and wrong. We may disagree over what should be categorized as right and wrong, but by and large, we, we have some sense of right and wrong, and we know that certain things belong in one column and certain things belong in the other. Why is that? Is that because we have uh, read Immanuel Kant and mm. been utterly convinced by Kantian ethics? Or we've read John Stuart Mill and we've become convinced of utilitarianism? No. Uh, typically, it's because we were brought up in a certain way. And our mm. mums and, and dads taught us that to behave in certain ways. And we internalize that. It's not something we think about. We may not be able to, uh, if pressed, 
prove to somebody by argument that a particular position is right or wrong. We just intuitively know it is so. And so what Taylor's getting at there is, is when he talks about the social imaginary, he's saying, you know, in order to understand how we we think of what it is to be a human, think of what it is to be a self, we can't just look at the the great heavy textbooks of philosophy. We have to look at the way people live their lives. We have to look at the stories they tell each other. We have to look at the TV programs they watch. We have to look at all of the things that shape our, our intuitions about the way the world is. And that's where, for example, in, in my book, I think I make the point, talking about gay marriage, I, I make the point that very few people change their position from a traditional view of marriage to a pro-gay marriage uh, position. Mm because they'd read a book on it and because they'd read arguments and been compelled to change their position. Most people, maybe they had gay friends, gay neighbors, they watched Will and Grace, they watched sitcoms and soap operas, and their intuitions were, were refashioned by these experiences. Uh, and that's what the social imaginary is getting at, really saying that to understand the self and how we think about the self, we can't just look at the great philosophers. We have to look at culture in general, and how it shapes the way we behave within this world. When it's also the positioning of culture in reference to the church, because I, I think it's fair to say in broad terms that the church used to be upstream of culture, but now the church is downstream of culture. Yeah. But you also got into this in your discussion of first, second, and third worlds. So, it, you know, to put it briefly, the first world, as you describe in the book, are moral codes based on myths. So think like ancient Sparta. And then second world is moral code based on faith, you know, something like Christianity. But there's a quote from the book here. I thought this was really important. First and second worlds thus have a moral and therefore cultural stability because their foundations lie in something beyond themselves. To put it another way, they do not have to justify themselves on the basis of themselves. Third worlds, by way of stark contrast to the first and second worlds, do not root their cultures, their social orders, their moral imperatives in anything sacred. They do have to justify themselves, but they cannot do so on the basis of something sacred or transcendent. Instead, they have to do so on the basis of themselves. Now, I, I'm, it's hard to know where to go with with a question like that because I think everybody feels like that is true, like what you're saying. The yeah. problem is, is if you have a second world view based in a faith, something like a Judeo-Christian ethic, how in the world do you have a productive discussion with somebody yeah. that has a third world view that is literally like having your, I forget who I'm stealing this quote from, where your feet are planted firmly in midair? Yeah, it's very hard. And I think we, we see that in the public square that... Uh, uh, theist arguments based on some kind of theism are, are in, you know, to use the social imaginary idea, they're intuitively implausible within mm. the general social imaginary with which most people uh, intuitively operate uh, today. I would say this means that certainly, well, two two things. One, I think Christians need to do a good job of teaching Christians how to think Christianly about things. Mm -hmm. In the church, we can use faith faith premises. And I think it's important that we do and we catechize people well in the faith. When we move into the public square, I think we, we need a different we we need a different strategy. I'm not here saying that theistic arguments aren't legitimate in the public square. They are legitimate. It's just they're not plausible or powerful in, in the public square. And this is where I think we should not be afraid of using uh, arguments from, if for want of a better word, nature, if you like, uh, to make a, a case. If, if you were to say to me, well, 
Uh, on what basis do you do you argue that monogamy between one man and one woman for life, except in the most extreme of circumstances, is the best way to organize a family or to think about marriage? What I'd want to do is go to some statistics that would seem to bear that out. Uh, when chatting to, to gay students sometimes, I want to direct them to, well, you know, look at the statistics for the damage done to the physical body and to physical health by living a very promiscuous uh, gay lifestyle and, and ask the question, does that look like flourishing? Mm-hmm. Does that look like something that is is a good thing? So I think in the public square, you're absolutely right that, yeah, we're now in, a, in the tough spot, but there are some things that society still values, such as bodily health, for example, or psychological health, that are perhaps areas where we could mount something of of an argument within the public square, pointing towards traditional resolutions. Well, Carl, I know know this to be the case. Um, Sometimes that makes Christians very uncomfortable because here recently I made a very short comment on how I think young earth is kind of a silly uh, idea. You know, why would God create the appearance of age only to give us the tools to uh, determine the age of something only to switch it and be like, ha, gotcha. It's only 6,000 years old. Like I don't find that entirely compelling and I'm I'm bastardizing their their argument, but I, I think people get very, very concerned with if they glean wisdom from outside the Bible. But again, the Bible can't, you know, tell you what to have for lunch today. The Bible can't tell you who the 14th president was. The, the Bible can't tell you whether to leave out of your neighborhood left or right today, uh, th- that kind of thing. So I, I do think Christians do need to be a little bit more comfortable with using things that God gave us, understanding that God is sovereign overall, not just over his scriptures. Uh, but to take a wild left, left turn from that subject to this one, there's something you brought up in the book and I wrote in the margins and I circled it in ex, ex, you know, exclamation point because every time I, I bring this up, Carl, it makes people uncomfortable. But I think I'm right about it. Okay. So it's a very short quote. You say this, even now in our sexually libertarian world, certain sexual taboos remain in place, pedophilia being perhaps the most obvious. Now, in my discussion, I discussed the Overton window, which I know you're familiar with and a lot of people are familiar with a couple of years ago on the show. And I said the Overton window will shift in the near future to include pedophilia as a reasonable way of operating in the world. And and my main argument is that if children, and we'll get into a deeper discussion on children and gender and sex and all that, if a child, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13 year old, can choose their gender, then why can they not choose their sexual partner? You don't have to be like a deep, you know, philosophical person to understand how that's the very next step, not the slippery slope, but the very next step is that argument. Do you feel like I'm crazy for saying that? Because some people say I'm crazy until they see other things in culture that are like, ooh, man, Kyle, you might be right. No, I think I don't think you're crazy at all. And I think we're already beginning to see signs that that kind of shift is taking place. Uh, there was the recent kerfuffle surrounding the uh, professor who talked about minor attracted persons. Right. Uh, uh, there are, I, I, I'm at the moment involved in a project uh, looking at various angles at cultural and social attitudes to child pornography Mm. in the United States. And there is certainly anecdotal evidence that sentencing is beginning to to shift on these kind of uh, cases and issues. So I do think we are beginning to witness signs that could legitimately be interpreted as shifting us towards the normalization of uh, uh, of sexual relations with minors and, and also pedophilia. Now, societies don't always follow through. Uh, sometimes societies go to the brink on something and then pull back. The 
The problem is you can't tell what a society is going to do until it actually does it. So I would say, you know, is the, is the argument that pedophilia could be the next thing on the agenda? Is that an argument that would only be made by somebody wearing a tinfoil hat? Mm-hmm. No, that is not tinfoil hat territory. I think that is a perfectly rational position to hold and for which to argue, even if, and we hope this is the case, even if it doesn't actually uh, come to pass. Well, it goes back to the discussion of first, second, and third worlds in terms of our moral codes, because if nothing is sacred in a third world and the majority of culture and society is pulling us into a third world, there is nothing that's off limits, right? And people are like, oh, you're being alarmist. It's slippery slope. But it's like, it's always a conspiracy theory until it's proven right. And if we've seen anything from 2020 (laughs) till today, how many things were we set? Like, again, if I had said a week ago, if I had referred to Demi Lovato as she on her Twitter, I would have been banned from the platform. And yet this week, if I referred to her as they, then I would be banned. Right? It's like, again, the, the shifting sands are yeah, crazy. But yeah. again, when you get to sacred, there's nothing that should be more sacred to a culture than marriage. Right. And obviously you, you brought up gay marriage earlier. There's another quote from the book, because I think this expounds. And guys, again, in this book, like in this interview, we can't get into like literally one one hundredth of the content of the book. You're going to have to go get this book for yourself. It will be in the show notes. But let me read this quote here. Marriage is therefore not to be understood as a lifelong monogamous relationship for the purposes of procreation, mutual companionship, and exclusive sexual union. Rather, it is for the mutual pleasure and satisfaction of the consenting parties. And that is all. So if you use the latter definition there, Carl, obviously any number of different definitions of marriage are appropriate, right? Gay marriage, uh, throuples, uh, you know, marriage between a bunch of different people. You could extrapolate that out into marriage with children, marriage with animals. I know people get real uncomfortable with that, that talk as well, but those are decent ways of extrapolating out that overall mindset. But again, if you look at it from my perspective, I studied this way less than you have, but you look back at totalitarian regimes or any regimes that came out of the, the many tributaries of Karl Marx or something like that. One of the things that they always try to destroy is marriage. They tried to destroy the system by destroying marriage, destroying one man, one woman for life with children, loving and all pointed towards the father. God go. Well, uh, yes. I mean, you're absolutely correct. And of course, one of the reasons why marriage is such a target is uh, families create strong bonds of loyalty. Exactly. There is a bio, you know, we don't fully understand, I think that the, the ties that bind relative to families, but Uh, families create alternative spheres of authority and loyalty over against the state or over against whoever is pushing whatever agenda at at any given moment in time. So the family is, you know, the destabilizing of the definition of the family or the weakening of the family has to be a significant part of any any agenda that seeks to, 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 to take total power for, for itself or to increase its own share of power. You're absolutely right. It's why. I, I mean, and you've seen this. You don't just have to go to Marxism. We could look at uh, uh, Iran in the 1980s where mm. uh, teachers would go into class and hold up bottles of, of scotch and ask the kids, any of you, any of you seen mummy and daddy, you know, using one of these at home? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, the, 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 the idea that the family is a sovereign space had to be uh, cracked in some way. So yeah, the, the, the dilution and dismantling of the family is, is key, I think, to, 
making individuals vulnerable to totalitarian forces. Absolutely. And to make them, that was the thing that I was always concerned about with the C word that we're not allowed to say out loud. Uh, thus we get doxxed. Um, the, whenever the government and your local magistrates were pushing so far in all these areas to where the next time they push, like everything's going to see normal up to a different point because the line mm. has been pushed so far out into the future. And in one way that you talk about the family, and again, like hopefully you're not, you know, awkward about me reading your own quotes to you because there's so many quotable things from this book, but you were discussing Reich's The Sexual Revolution and you were talking more about the patriarchal family. So let me read this quote to you here. While asserting that the patriarchal family is the single most important unit of ideological control for an oppressive and totalitarian regime, Reich also believes that the state must be used to coerce families and, where necessary, actively punish those who dissent from the sexual liberation being proposed. In short, the state has the right to intervene in family matters because the family is potentially the primary opponent of political liberation through its cultivation and policing of traditional sexual codes. So, yeah. Carl, we're seeing this now. We're seeing this not just in Europe. We're not seeing this just in Canada. We're seeing in the United States to where families that do not gender their children properly based on the child's understanding of their gender that day or in that moment, they could lose their children. There was a mother, I believe in Ohio that was losing her rights to her child. But the, 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 I guess the, uh, the negotiation from the state was, is if you give up all rights to your daughter, we will ensure that you have to, they have to get permission from you before she can go forward with transition surgery. And so this mother made the impossible decision of saying, it's so important that my daughter not get this surgery to become a boy, which is not actually uh, possible. So I'm going to give up my rights to my, to my, my kid, right? We're seeing that now. How, how did we get here? I know that's a big question, but how did we get to the point where the state is using the sexual revolution to destroy families from the inside? Yeah. Well, again, if we go back to Reich, Reich's point there really is he's wrestling with why don't the working classes rise up in revolution? And his answer is, well, it's because kids are being trained to follow an authoritarian figure as a child. And when they grow up, and he's thinking in a German context, of course, uh, when they when they become adults, they look for the, the strong authoritarian figure to follow. They, they Adolf Hitler, there he is, you know, the, the big father figure. So Reich's, Reich's view is in order to stop that happening, we need to we need to smash the family. And what is it that that most defines families. Well, it's sexual codes. Uh, it's codes about incest. It's codes about when it is and is not appropriate to, to have one's first sexual encounter, etc. etc. All of these things lie at the heart of what a traditional family is. So Reich's view is we need to smash that. Fast forward to the present day, I think what has come to grip, it, it's, it's sort of Reichianism shorn of its Marxism. I think what grips the imagination of people today is this, is that we, at base, we are fundamentally our desires and we are most fundamentally our sexual desires. That means that anybody who interferes with our sexual desires is preventing us from being who we truly are. Now, think about that relative family. Who are the people who police our sexual desires, who, who train us up in sexual behavior, morality? It's, it's parents. Right. Uh, well, if you have a if you have a view of, of the world where freedom is equated with sexual freedom, authentic, personal authenticity is equated with sexual freedom, then anybody who stands in the way of sexual freedom stands opposed to freedom and opposed to authenticity. 
And the most likely targets in this are the family, are the parents. And that's why I think uh, sexual education has become such a big part of the schooling system and why it is being used as a, a, a weapon against parents. Uh, you know, either conform or lose your kids. Uh, I think it's it's a perfectly logical development, if you like, from the the sort of thinking of Reich in the 1930s. Uh, it's unfortunate, it's unpleasant, but it is not un- logically unexpected. No, absolutely not. And you also, in the book, you're talking about Freud, you're talking about future of an illusion. And it said today's education as therapy exhibits these two pathologies. And you mentioned them here, a liberation from traditional sexual codes and given its role in maintaining traditional sexual codes, liberation from religion. And we yeah. see this all throughout the schools. That's why we advocate you know, constantly for people to homeschool their kids or they vet a private Christian school because yeah. just because there's a cross on the door before you walk into the main lobby, that does not mean that this stuff is not pervading into those different areas. But I do want to read a quote here, surprise. Um, that's perhaps the crux of the entire book. And you've mentioned transgenderism several times, but I think this is the one that encapsulates it overall and why we should all talk about it. So let's read it here. Finally, perhaps the most significant social aspect of transgenderism is the way it provides the latest and most potent reason for the discussion of the traditional family. By the beginning of the 21st century, the psychologizing of the self, the sexualizing of uh, psychology, and the politicizing of sex had all played significant roles in the abolition of the pre-political. If sex is politics and children are sexual, then children's sexuality is political too. That for me, that that was one of the most important sentences in the entire book for me, Carl, because you address the pre-political, because we live in an age where everything, including business, including the military, including sports, everything is politics. It's inescapable. We used to have escapes when we would go to entertainment, we would go to the theater, we would go to the ball field, but no more. There are no places that are safe to be away from politics. Is that is that really the main demon, I guess, in all of this is this movement towards the the abolition of anything that's pre-political? Yeah. And whether it's the main demon, I don't know, but it's certainly part of the toxic brew that we're we're having to drink at the moment. Uh, And I think that, you know, the pre-political has always provided one of a better term. I I hate to use the the sort of the language of but pre-political always provided safe places for people to, to disagree, for people to come together, you know, back home in in the UK, you know, the local pub was somewhere where people could go and, 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 and share a drink. The Village Green was somewhere where people would play cricket together. There were these, uh, what we sometimes, the, the English philosopher Edmund Burke calls them little platoons. Sometimes we call them mediating institutions. There were these organizations that were, uh, that stood between the individual and the, the political arena and provided significant uh, joy, significant forms of life. We just don't have those anymore. They have all been colonized by politics. And it's unfortunately, it's, it's impossible to resist because I, I make the point in the book that as soon as one side decides to make something political, everybody has to play the game. Because particularly in America, where everything defaults to litigation very, very quickly, as soon as somebody decides to sue the Boy Scouts from the right or the left, everybody is suddenly involved politically in in engaging with the Boy Scouts. So it's become a very unfortunate part of 
of modern culture. And, and I think the biggest casualty of this, I don't mention this in the book, actually, but I think the biggest and most significant casualty is we've lost traditional notions of friendship, that now friendship is mediated through political and sexual categories. I was talking to a youth worker recently working one of the schools, uh, and this is, we're talking Western Pennsylvania, this is pretty rural, this is conservative territory culturally. Mm-hmm. They're telling me how 80% of the girls at this middle school, he was now identified as bisexual. Well, first of all, in my day, I don't think I'd have identified by myself by my sexuality at any point during my high school. It just wasn't how we thought. Mm. But secondly, I, I asked him, what, you know, those statistics are staggering. What, why do you think that is? And his answer, I thought, was, was simple but profound. His answer was this. We don't teach kids about friendship anymore. So when teenagers have strong feelings of affection for a friend, we don't give them any vocabulary to understand that affection other than the sexual. And then, of course, you know, so they have to translate what to me would have been an intense friendship. They have to translate into the language of sex and sexual orientation. So the loss of the pre-political, I, I think, is also reflected in the loss of the traditional notion of friendship, which wasn't just built upon totally agreeing with each other on everything. It was built upon more than that. It was built upon ways of life that were pre-political. Well, and Carl, like it's like we've moved from friends to comrades. Like here are the people that believe the exact same way that I do. And like yeah. that used to be the most fun is like your buddy liked this team and you liked this team and you would make fun of each other and you would poke fun at each other. But again, that in modern society, you can't do that yeah. because, the, you know, poking fun and being sarcastic, like that isn't a microaggression. That's just an aggression aggression. Right. And so yeah. that's kind of the world that we found ourselves in. And it's certainly a detriment to our children. Um, yeah. That's one of the concerns that, that we have in modern culture is our kids aren't learning how to deal with one another. Like when, whenever you go to a store now and you see someone from the younger generation not know how to communicate with you, not know how to walk you through an issue or get you to the point where you can be helped, it's like somebody failed them and it wasn't just mommy and daddy. Like there yeah. is a greater uh, culture around them that that goes into that. Uh, now, one thing I did want to discuss from your book as well, and, you know, comedians have talked about this and plenty of political pundits have, have you know, made inroads into this, but it's a hard subject to talk to. But when you talk about the LGBTQ lobby or revolution or whatever, if you were to break it down, it makes no sense whatsoever why the L's, the G's, the B's, the T's, and the Q's are on the same team working together. Because each of those individual group, you know, aside from the fact that they're made up of individual people that have the image of God and they're not part of this homogenous group that all thinks and does things the exact same, it doesn't make sense foundationally why all those people would be advocating as part of the same flag. You spend a lot of time in the book, and I'm giving it short shrift here, but why is it just in general that the L's, the G's, the B's, and the T's yeah. and the Q's find it you know, advantageous to work together? Well, it's an interesting question. I think uh, if you were to go back to the 70s, you'd, you'd find significant tension. But really, it was just the L and the G in those days. Mm-hmm. Significant tension between uh, lesbians and gay men, partly because lesbians, feminists, tended to see gay men as still enjoying male privilege, even though they were homosexual. What changes is change that is AIDS. AIDS makes gay men victims, uh, and, and and pulls that the first L and G centers start to arise in the wake of the AIDS crisis when uh, the the L's begin to see the G's as victims. 
The question as to how the, the, the T and the Q get involved, that's interesting because both the L and the G, of course, and indeed the B, uh, assume the importance of biological sex for identity. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, l- lesbians are attracted, sexually attracted towards people who are biologically female. Gay men are attracted towards people who are biologically male. That's not the case for for, uh, for the for the Q or the T. He in the Q you have much more fluid sexual categories. In the T, of course, you know it's not the T is interesting because the the, the T is not actually a movement of sexual desire in the way that the L, the G, and and, and the Q are. Mm. The T is, I think, more of a body dysmorphia. So uh, and also, of course, the T emphatically denies the importance of biology for identity which is why you know, somebody like andrew sullivan the gay the gay journalist gets into trouble because he says you know I, i'm not sexually attracted towards women who've transitioned to being men they're not really men he's now transphobe because mm-hmm. as a gay man he doesn't find a woman pretending to be a man sexually attractive right. uh, so the the question then becomes: Well, how does the T get bolted into this if it's not a if it's not a binary movement and it's not movement of sexual desire? I think it's it's iconoclastic. It's it's a question of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is white straight men, uh, and that's ultimately what bound the alliance together. Interesting enough, I think we're beginning to see the alliance starting to fracture. Uh, the, the the trans-exclusionary radical feminists being hated by the trans-affirming feminists. We, we're seeing that alliance uh, starting to fracture. And I think that's a result of the fact that you know, white, straight men are no longer deemed to be the threat. You know, they're sort of marginal now. They're no longer a big enough threat to keep the alliance together. So I think the next five or 10 years will be interesting. And what we will see, it may surprise some listeners, but what we will see is a a dramatic fragmenting of this movement uh, in a way that's actually entirely predictable. Well, it's predictable if you just look at their flag, right? Every time you go and Google the flag, there's a new stripe. There's a yep. new design. I saw the Babylon Bee, they made a kind of a funny thing. They put like a monkeypox symbol on the flag, <laughs> right? And it was just kind of like, yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, it yeah. sounds silly, but how yeah. far are we away until that? That's the yeah. norm. Now, uh, there's so much more uh, left to talk about on this. Unfortunately, we're, we're running short on time. So I'll make this the last question of the day. Uh, our mission at Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness. Okay. Yeah. That, that is what we do. And we try to do that by, by giving guys information. Again, the yeah. example I always use is if you're mad about CRT in, in your kid's school, but you don't know what CRT stands for, and you don't know that it comes from critical theory or critical legal studies or the Frankfurt school or Karl yeah. Marx or Satan or whatever, like it's going to be a hard conversation for you to convince people to come to your side yeah. of things. But when I was finished reading this book, you know, and I, I kind of mean this as a compliment. I kind of just put my head in my hands and I'm like, God, we're so screwed. Like we can't even have a conversation about the things that are so important, even if we have the information, which this book does yeah. a great job of giving us that information. So I guess in a sheepish way, as I'm going to ask it, what in the world are we to do as men to, to be able to push back against this darkness yeah. that we're seeing? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, we need to have a realistic uh, view of what the possibilities are. And I think, you know, the, the possibilities in the short to medium term are very limited. So first of all, I think we, we, we should not set ourselves the back-breaking task of turning this all around by next Wednesday. It's not going to happen. 
I think we have to have a, 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 a vision of the long game that I think we need to think, well, what we're doing today, I, I said to my wife within the last 12 months, I said, you know, I've come to the conclusion I'm pretty much going to lose every cultural issue I engage on during my own lifetime. I said, but that's okay. I'm still going to engage on them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to leave something behind for the next generation to stand on and to build on. I've used in class the example of medieval cathedrals. Medieval cathedrals typically take hundreds, it took hundreds of years to build. So the guys who laid the foundation stones on day one of construction knew they would never worship in the building, but they still did it anyway because they weren't doing it for them. The story was not about them. The story was about God. And so we've got to play the long game. I think we can take confidence in that because we know that the church wins at the end of the time. We may not live to see that victory in our lifetime, but that's okay. We need to play our part here and now faithfully. And that brings me to the other part of what can we do. Hmm. Uh, the place where we can have most impact in the pl is the place where the Lord has put us in the local communities, the local churches, the local neighborhoods where we are. So I think uh, it's important to vote it's important to, to, to be involved in the broader work of society, if you like. Uh, we should all rejoice when the right people get elected, when we get a good Supreme Court uh, verdict. Mm -hmm. But we shouldn't think of that as our main responsibility. Our main responsibility is being part of the community in which the Lord has placed us loving people, talking to people that we really encounter day by day. And although dialogue has broken down at the national level in significant ways, I still think that one-on-one, -on -one, one human being looking into the eye of another human being can find some way to talk. So play the long game, trust the Lord, be faithful where he's placed you. Those would be the three ways I would say push back. I absolutely love that. And the other thing I would say that really ties into those three is just obedience, overall obedience. Yeah. Like if you hear the Lord's prompting. So again, that, that example of someone laying the foundational stones, knowing they'll never worship in the cathedral. It's the same thing that we love absolution in our culture. We love to know the answer. And we like to know that if we go up and give a guy a, sam a, you know, a sandwich on the street, or we ask a stranger, if we can pray for him, we want, we want to know in that moment that their life has changed and that they've turned to the Lord and all those different things. But that may not be the case. That may be a seed that you planted that's going to get watered a decade from now. And yeah. the whole point was you being obedient to Christ and obedient to God's the prompting in that moment. Now, Carl, we, we could go a lot of different other places, but I know you got a plane to catch. So for right now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, thanks very much. I thoroughly enjoyed our time together. Carl Truman, thank you for coming on Odonta Life of Man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Carl Truman. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a couple of links to books. So The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, there's a link to that. And then also there's a link to Strange New World and then a link to some other places where he contributes. So that's uh, what I mentioned in the intro, the Ethics and Public Policy Center and First Things. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. 
keep seeking the Lion of Judah.